I love a good mystery, and so does everyone else. In fact, everyone loves a good family mystery, especially one with as many twists and turns as June's Journey. I know that our listeners will absolutely love this game because you are uncovering the mystery of June's sister's murder, and you're becoming a detective. You're looking for clues, and each scene will lead you to a new thrilling storyline. This is a great way to engage your observation skills to uncover key pieces of information that lead you on to many chapters of mystery, danger, and romance. Right now, I'm in the process of interviewing family members, and this is bringing me back, just so you know, to my days in law enforcement, and I'm having such a blast with it because it is so much more lighthearted, but it also has the mystery of where will this take me? You can even chat and play with or against other players by joining a detective club. You'll even get the chance to play in a detective league to put your skills to the test. Megan, I think we should join a detective club together. We've got this. (laughs) Can you crack the case? Download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. June needs your help, detective. Download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. The Hargan women seemed to have it all. We were blessed. My mom was amazing. But detectives would soon discover... Inside the house, there were the bodies of two women. A story of betrayal you would struggle to believe if it wasn't true. I am just praying to God this is a sick joke. From 48 Hours, this is Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings, wherever you get your podcasts. This podcast may contain content that is graphic and disturbing in nature. Listener discretion is advised. A prominent 76-year-old preschool owner was named as the head of a child molestation ring in Manhattan Beach, Los Angeles. The accusations extended to her children and her grandchildren, who all worked in this family business. But was this family-owned preschool a front covering the most egregious child abuse scandal in American history? Or was this woman and her family members the victim of a modern-day witch hunt? This is episode 34, The Virginia McMartin Story. Hey, Megan. How are you? Wonderful. How are you? I am great, as always. Actually, that's not really true. I'm great, not as always. Uh, Do you know who Virginia McMartin is? I'm embarrassed to say I don't know this case. You will know it. You just don't know her name as a single. Got it. Let me just say, I'm going to start out with Virginia McMartin, but this case is much bigger than just one woman. Although females are going to play the central role in this case. Virginia McMartin and her husband, Charlie McMartin, moved to Manhattan Beach in 1931 with their two children, Peggy and Glenn. Later, or shortly after, Charlie left Virginia reportedly for a younger woman in 1946, and Virginia went to work at a nursery before opening her own school in 1956. And this is the McMartin Preschool. And this was a premier school with an excellent reputation in the community. Virginia received accolades in the community. She even won an award for being essentially Woman of the Year in her city, and that was in the 1970s. She had a great reputation. Her school had a great reputation. Um, Her family had a great reputation. Virginia's daughter, Peggy McMartin Bucky, 
and her children, Raymond and Peggy and Bucky, worked there as well. So this is a family enterprise. I, you know, I watched the documentary or one of the documentaries on this case, and everyone said if you wanted to go to the best preschool, you would go to McMartin. Let's talk about the initial allegations. There was a report. It came in from a mother of one of the children going to that preschool. Her name was Judy Johnson, and he was a two-and-a-half to three-year-old boy. And she reported that Raymond Bucky, and this is, the remember, the grandson, so she reported that 25-year-old Raymond Bucky had molested her then three-year-old son. And this is a very serious allegation. It's the first one of its kind. Why does she think this? She went to a doctor, and there's definitely, this is one of those things where there's somewhat conflicting information, but she took her child to a doctor because he had like a rash on his backside, and he was having some, as I understand it, like anal or rectal Mm -hmm. bleeding. Now, I don't know. I think there's a number of conditions that could cause that, Mm -hmm. but I believe it was her doctor who first said, I think he's been sodomized. And so that prompted the call. The police investigated. They jumped to right away. But they also did something that would be very damning or would have dire consequences. What they did was they sent a letter to all of the parents at the McMartin School asking them to speak to their children about possible molestation. But they said, don't worry, it's probably, you know, nothing. And these are all younger than five or six. They're all preschool kids. And they're sending it to, you know, parents in one of the most prestigious schools saying, you know, we just want to find out if your kids were molested, but don't worry. I'm sure that did not go over well. I mean, right away, it scared the community immediately. Mm -hmm. The police arrested Ray Bucky, in fact, in September 1983. And that's when this case began. But they released him shortly from jail because they didn't have any evidence Mm -hmm. to push forward with the allegations. They had the doctor's exam. But as we know, that could have been Mm -hmm. construed in a couple of different ways. What happened, though? I mean, the parents got in an uproar pretty quickly. And within two months, the school closed as many parents just began taking their kids out of the school and as the allegations were growing. Obviously, we don't know how many allegations would have come forward independent of sending this letter, which probably created a mass hysteria. Was the purpose of the letter for parents to ask their children? It was, but regardless, it planted the seed that there was molesting. And then parents are asking them and telling them about molestation. Yeah, they don't know what it is. Yeah. Okay, so that's the initial allegations. Let's move on to the investigation that began to take place. Child psychologist Key McFarlane interviewed most of the children using a technique with puppets, and she began reporting that a lot of children were molested. She was using anatomically correct puppets, and she was using them to point to the places where, you know, children might have been molested and touched, and she called them things like yucky stuff done to me there, and... You know, it it was new at the time, even using anatomically correct Mm -hmm. puppets. I read, actually, afterwards, I've read that that's been criticized and heralded in some ways for using, you know, the proper anatomy. But the puppets did, like, she also had these puppets, and I'm not sure it was the same one, but they did, like, she would talk through them Mm -hmm. and say things through them, like, well, you know, Jimmy, are you lying? Or, you know, so they were almost like, it's not the use of the puppets, it's the way she interviewed them that later on would become problematic. She was from Children's Institute International, and that was an organization that dealt with abuse of children. It was, you know, a reputable organization. Uh, The children were also seeing Astrid Hager, and she was a pediatrician who was in charge of examining the children and documenting these examination with photographs. And Hager concluded that a lot of these children were being molested. Hager said, and again, this is controversial, I'll get into it at the trial, but I'm going to say that she saw some abrasions or other marks that she said looked like uh, a, a penetrating blunt force trauma. 
I'm laying out the investigation and kind of the key players here. There was a male reporter, Wayne Satz. He was dating Key McFarlane at the time, who was that child psychologist. He began reporting these cases on the news regularly. Now, this was a problem and this was wrong because this had not gone to court yet. This was in the investigative stage. And it was very inappropriate then of McFarlane to provide this information. And he also reported allegations that were hard to believe, such as Ray Bucky had possessed guns and brandished them and threatened them in front of the children at the preschool. And the numbers that Key McFarlane was reporting were just escalating into the hundreds. But Key also reported that the children said other employees were involved. And here's where it goes from Ray Bucky to the other teachers. This is important. Key McFarlane was the one who said that other people were involved. She said she had this epiphany based on like what one of the other students said. And I don't know if he said like this happened in a room where maybe another you know teacher was there or, oh, of course, those other teachers were around. But she had the epiphany and she's the one who reported to the police that there were other people. The allegations then started to snowball. And the district attorney announced that there were satanic elements to these crimes. And the district attorney announced that small animals were slaughtered to scare the children. So these allegations- Do they have any proof of any of this other than the allegations? It's a great question. We're going to come to that. But not really, Amy, is the answer. And understand, I think, that you know these allegations go from one incident of possible molestation, which is serious, and don't get me wrong, but they've snowballed into the hundreds. And now we're talking about satanic rituals. Key McFarlane reported that these kids were playing types of you know weird, naked, ritualistic games. There were reports that there were tunnels under the McMartin School where they would bring them from rooms to room where uh, multiple employees were molesting or abusing these children. So the reports just escalated. Defense attorney, enter, I should say, enter defense attorney Danny Davis. He was, he came in as a young, zealous defense attorney, and he was going to represent Ray Bucky and other family members. And Danny Davis wanted to bring Ray Bucky in and surrender him. He knew that he was going to be arrested. Again, but the DA made a big show of bringing the media to the Bucky home and arresting the entire family in front of the cameras. Ray Bucky, his mother, Peggy Bucky, his grandmother, Virginia McMartin, and his sister, Peggy Ann, and three other teachers were arrested. So this is a total of seven people arrested for numerous allegations of child abuse. This was at a time there was a campaign for the new DA position. So this guy, Robert Philobosian, he was the interim DA, and he was making a push for this position. So Danny Davis started saying, like, this is obviously a tactic, you know? He obviously wanted to look good. And now they had the bail hearings. I'm always fast. You know, I'm totally mm-hmm. fascinated with bail hearings because this is one of my areas of research. Bail was historically, bail was supposed to be used in order to ensure that a defendant would return to court. There's a presumption of innocence. In 1984, the Supreme Court ruled that bail could also be used to detain potentially dangerous people. So if it was thought that people were going to pose a serious danger to the community, bail could be used. Typically, denying bail in this way, like if you deny bail for potential danger, it's because there's a murder. It's a capital mm-hmm. case. There's murder and there's, you know, the, the kind of threat mm-hmm. of real harm. But these bail hearings for this case for the Bucky McMartins and the three other teachers were significant. Because the judge granted the prosecutor's request for no bail for these people in a non-capital case. Just to play devil's advocate, though, if they were, in fact, molesting hundreds of kids, I would consider that a threat to society. And that's the exact argument that there was. But there's a presumption of innocence. Yes. You're correct, though. I know. I see. And and there is definitely a threat to society. But you have to understand also, Virginia, the owner, 
She was in her late 70s and in a wheelchair at this time. I'm not sure that I would argue that she needed to be detained in prison. I'm not sure what physical threat she could actually pose. Her daughter, so Peggy was a little bit older. The other teachers were six, there were six females. They were older as well. Mm -hmm. Peggy and Bucky and Ray Bucky were the only two young ones Mm -hmm. in the crowd. So these were older women. I'm just putting that out Mm -hmm. there. But the judge was also reading some of these allegations in the indictment at the bail hearings. And I have to tell you, they sounded fabricated, frankly. The judge was reading allegations about the small animals being killed and about these kids being taken out in tunnels. The investigators could never find these tunnels, just so you know. And the police, when they were investigating, could not find any photos or any other hard evidence whatsoever to back up any of the accusations from the children. So it was only the children's reports and the doctors. Right. I'm glad you asked that. Let's talk about the tape. This was like the beat. Yeah, exactly. What tapes? Good question. The significant piece of evidence was, you know, the accusations made by the children. And it was Key McFarlane who interviewed all of them, but she videotaped them. She videotaped all the interviews. I think that she had videotaped them because she was really proud of her methodology. But I don't think she thought that these tapes would ever be used in the court. I think she thought she'd report the findings mm-hmm. and, and they would. So she was using it for a personal just. I think so. Yeah. Keep track of things. Or maybe even as an example in her field, because mm-hmm. this was so- sort of a new technique she was using. And I think she mm-hmm. thought maybe this was worthy of showing to colleagues as well. The defense submitted a motion right away that they wanted to see these tapes. Of course, This is a significant piece of mm-hmm. evidence. I should mention again, I just want to say Danny Davis, as we get through this was such a zealous advocate for them. Mm-hmm. I mean, he's exactly what you would have wanted if you mm-hmm. got... He was, and he was a public defender, you said? No, he was, uh, he was private, okay. but he was young. I mean, he's still youngish, and this was, you know, mm-hmm. a long time ago. But, okay, so the defense wins the ruling to view the tapes, and the prosecution, I mean, they fought hard. And the ruling was sort of complicated. It was like, yes, you can view them, but you can't take them, but we'll arrange a, a place. Mm-hmm. I mean, it sounded complicated when they explained it, but I thought, well, that's probably, you know, they're not going to let him take the tapes. Mm-hmm. But what the tapes revealed was really shocking. Shocking in that they were favorable to the defense. How, you might ask, Amy? Yeah, I was waiting. <laughs> the children were telling very different stories in different sessions with Key and her staff. And what they showed was that Key, it was mostly Key, but it was also a couple of her staff members. They were asking very leading questions. You knew that was coming, I was right? going to ask, were they leading? Yeah. Not only were they asking like extremely leading questions, but if the children didn't give the answers that they wanted, they would act very disappointed. And the tapes showed that they would say things like, for example, well, Chrissy told us that you all played naked games, all right? And the kid would say, I don't remember that. And Key would say, well, you must be stupid then. What? No. I'm not even kidding you. There was one where she called a girl like, you must be dumb then. Are you saying that this person is smarter than you is what she said. And then, of course, what's the child's response going to be? Well, no, no, I'm smart too, right? So I can remember this. Um, It it was just this repetition of questions in this nature. Well, why can't you remember this? So-and-so said this happened. Are they better than you? Do they have a better memory than you? So it was making the children feel bad if they weren't providing a story that was consistent with what Key had already formed. So they kind of, they formed a conclusion and then tried to collect all the facts around it to support that hypothesis. So the questions were misleading. They were leading and misleading, suggestive. And by the way, Key, as turns out, wasn't even a licensed therapist at the time. She was a social worker. Um, so all of a sudden it was like, whoa. She became well known, like I said, for using these anatomically correct dolls with children. But it was the problem of the coercive interviewing techniques that were used. I mean, the defense thought this was like striking gold, though. They were like saying, you know, 
we thought we had the winning ticket here. All they showed was that these kids, nobody put together a coherent story without being coached into mm-hmm. it. So what happens next is the question. We go to a preliminary hearing. Do you know what a prelim hearing is? Of course, they have to establish probable cause. Ah, it's because it's because you teach uh, about yes, this. I do. Okay, so I don't know if you could explain it better, but I would say the best way to explain this in a major case, in any felony case, there is a preliminary hearing to determine whether there's sufficient evidence to move forward to trial. The preliminary hearing, I think it's usually kind of pro forma, isn't it? I mean, we all, we know that only three to five percent of all cases really go to trial, but I don't know of that many cases in which there was a shutdown at the prelim hearing. I almost feel like it's like a grand jury, like it's more often to return a yes, we're going. It's kind of checking the box. You don't take it to preliminary hearing unless you feel very strongly. You wouldn't get to that point unless as a prosecutor, you're you're pretty much there. You have it. You have your probable cause. We'll we'll question that in this case. But yeah, right. You, You have to feel pretty confident. Okay. So the preliminary hearings begin in June 1984. And it was a long preliminary hearing intentionally by Bucky's attorneys. I believe that, you know, there's a couple attorneys. Danny Davis was the lead attorney here. But Danny Davis had said that he wanted to to really drag this thing out um, to make it long, to make it painful, to, you know, hopefully force them to see everything they had, maybe force them to drop out. In January 1985, 14 children began their testimony during the preliminary hearing. So this is already going for seven months. The preliminary hearing? Oh, yes. Seven months before the children took the stand to testify, to see what kind of evidence they were going to give later on. I think that's a testament to the fact that you don't have probable cause if it goes on for that long. Oh, just, I (laughs) I agree, but just wait, Amy, okay? Some of these children are small, too, to be testifying in front of the accused. You know, I mean, there was a discussion of like how some of them, their feet didn't even touch the ground. And there was a controversy over whether or not they should be allowed to sit in um, a separate room and testify through, what's that called? Open circuit or closed circuit? Oh, like the TV, closed circuit TV? Right. There was a question, should they be allowed? Obviously, the defense attorneys didn't want that. They thought that it violates, you know what it violates? The right to face your accuser? Yeah, but that's in trial and this is only preliminary hearing. So does it matter? Well, the defense won. The children had to testify in, in the room or in the same in the courthouse mm-hmm. and they told some stories about naked games some about the tunnels some about sacrifice what happened was they didn't describe it the same as in the tapes some of them were telling bits of stories that weren't consistent with the original stories they told from what i read it wasn't good for the prosecution i mean none of the children or maybe very few of the children got up there and told you know a consistent mm-hmm. solid story even if they're telling the truth, though, Amy, are, I mean, children recounting details on a stand, it, this is very... Children that young? Yeah. The fact that they even put the children on the stand, I think, is problematic. I mean, we know that there are unreliable witnesses. Children are highly suggestible, and they can create false memories, especially when being led by someone who is suggesting this information. One of the prosecutors during this hearing, his name was Glenn Stevens, he resigned in January 1986, and he gave interviews right after. And his interviews, he admitted, he said the evidence was very flawed and very weak in this case. But he was the prosecutor? He was a prosecutor. He resigned in the middle of... Oh, because he probably didn't want to go through with it. He didn't want to. So you could tell what happened was he was was entering like the last, like, you know, the end of this. and, And he believed like, look, we just don't have the evidence here. And we've gone through this preliminary hearing. So I watched an interview with him. 
And someone had asked him, one of the reporters, I think he did a couple interviews, but a reporter asked him if he thought that the people were innocent. And he was like, look, I can't speak to their factual innocence. What I can tell you is the evidence is very flawed in this case, Mm -hmm. and it shouldn't have gone forward. The interim DA was gone. The new DA, Ira Reiner, dropped charges against five of the seven defendants following this, wait for it, 18-month preliminary hearing. A year and a half. Have you ever heard I didn't even heard know of- that was allowed. Because you're innocent till proven guilty. This is the longest preliminary hearing in American history. And what should it tell you? At the end of 18 months, five of the defendants, and from what I've read and what I've seen- And they were all in jail during this? Or- all in jail during this time being held. Everyone. Wow. Out of the two that go forward, um, one was Raymond Bucky, which mm-hmm. seemed clear. He yeah. was the original mm-hmm. allegation. But the second one was his mother, Peggy Bucky. Mm-hmm. They dropped the charges against everyone else. And from what I read, they presented not one shred of evidence really in 18 months to even suggest why these other women were implicated in this crime. And they held these women. You have to watch some of the interviews with some of them, too. It ruined their lives, I'm sure. Of course. These weren't even wrongful convictions because they're not going to get compensated or anything. No. There's nothing. All right. So now we're on 1986. And now over time, these kids, they're going to think that their memory is reliable because this is what they've been told for so long. So they're going to seem more confident when they're testifying. And this will go to later. How do you remember if it's correct memories, if they're implanted memories? The misinformation effect, for those of you who might not know, is when information that happens post an event distorts earlier memories of that event. You know, I did my master's thesis on the misinformation effect. I actually did not know that. So we can talk about it. All right. Very nice. The trial began in July 1987 with Lael Rubin acting as lead prosecutor. This becomes a little controversial because later on, Ruben would go on to marry a reporter who was doing all the coverage on this case for the L.A. Times. Wasn't there an earlier reporter who was dating the psychologist? So that's the problem. You have a reporter dating the psychologist and then you have like the one of the head reporters, maybe even a supervisor over at the L.A. Times. And they wound up getting married (laughs) and they're providing the coverage on this case. Now, they said that they didn't get together until not even way after the case, but about four years into it. Mm. But this case would go on for seven years. Wow. Remember, the initial allegation comes out in 83. We're in 87 right now when the trial begins. Let's take it back. Let's rewind a minute. Judy Johnson had made that first initial report. What happened was, though, she didn't wind up testifying at trial. The reason why? Well, it came out. And it looked like the prosecution was hiding this, that she was had a serious drinking problem. She was an alcoholic and she had some serious mental health issues. I believe it could be wrong, but I believe it was acute schizophrenia mm-hmm. was what she was diagnosed with. And the night before she was supposed to testify, she called the judge in the case and said she couldn't do it. She was freaking out. She was scared. Mm. And he he's on the, one of the documentaries saying, look, I was just trying to figure out a way to get her in here. Yeah. Because he, he believed that what she was saying was false? Or? No, he, he just wanted to figure out a way to get her to court because she was a key. Oh, okay. she, yeah. she was a key figure. You know, she's the first person who re- uh, filed the report. Mm-hmm. That night, she drank herself to death the night before. So she never testified. What? The autopsy showed that it was alcohol-related liver failure. So she didn't materialize as a witness. What? Yep. The night before they should she- have dropped it then. That was their star, one of their star witnesses. Was yeah. their star witness, and the father of her child said that over his dead body would he let his son testify. So that's the original. Okay. Wow. Now, what comes next at trial? One of the other damning pieces of evidence. There's the jailhouse informant, George Freeman. 
And he said that Ray Bucky, Raymond Bucky, confessed to molesting children over years and years. But it also emerged during this time that the sheriffs were practice making a practice out of putting jailhouse informants in with high-profile defendants in order to get confessions. Well, what did this informant get? He got a reduction in his sentence? All the informants yeah. get, you know, something. But it also came out that George Freeman shared a jail cell with Ray Bucky for two days. Hmm. In two days, are you going to... And by the way, Ray Bucky was very quiet, very reserved. He, he was not a talker. And you think he's going to reveal to this jail yeah. cell bunkmate after two days that, you know, his deepest, darkest secrets... I don't think so. Mm -mm. Also, when Freeman took the stand, he looked terrible because they used him. Apparently, once he got out of jail, he went on like a total bender. And when asked if he had any credibility by Danny Davis or one of the defense attorneys, he said, not really. (laughs) (laughs) At least he's honest. (laughs) Again, this wasn't good for the prosecution. The prosecution like shit themselves at this point. I mean, there's no way to rehab him because they actually said like he physically looked terrible. And then he just says, yeah, I'm not really credible. <laughs> so there goes. Uh, that's that's a, that was a big that's a big miss again for prosecutors. Dr. Hager took the stand and she discussed her photography of the children. Who is she again? Oh, she's the one. She's who- the pediatrician. And what was interesting about her is that she was the first doctor to start photographing uh, children molestation cases because she said it's not enough to like make notes and describe. You have to actually see. She was compelling. They said she was a very strong witness, but she had two other doctors who got up and they were all in disagreement about where the trauma occurred on the show, like on the children and what was the cause of the trauma. They weren't all in genital areas. And some of them were scars and abrasions, not things that you could say definitively. I mean, kids get hurt all the time. Isn't it hard to say that? I think that was the point of the other doctors. Hager had concluded that something like 80% of the children she saw were molested. Also the number, I mean, these numbers are really high. Key McFarlane and Hager reporting hundreds of children. Is it possible? Yes. But these numbers seem, you know, astronomical. Mm -hmm. Um, She was, nonetheless, she was definitely a very credible witness and she's still very credible. And she invented this technique, which has been used. She's heralded as the- What, taking the photos? Photographs, yeah. She was really the first to begin I can see there being issues with that as well, though, because it's it's child pornography in a way. If you think about it, it kind of is, yeah, but it was evidence documenting the trauma. But But you're right, that could be considered that. Ray Bucky and Peggy Bucky, they testified in their own defense. They did well, but they also made like issues out of things that, you know, in a way to almost dirty them up. Like Mm. there was really nothing on Peggy, but with Ray Bucky, they asked him like questions- uh, a whole line of questioning about the adult pornography he possessed to make him look like a pervert. He was a 25-year-old man, and it wasn't child pornography. It was adult. They also asked him, like, isn't it true? It's been reported that you don't always wear underwear. Think, things that were really oh, on the periphery. Poor guy. Yeah. Assuming he didn't do it, poor guy. If poor he guy. did it, then no. These things guy. were outside the periphery. Um, they, just, they were just meant to, you know, make him look mm. sort of perverted, I would say. After three years... Almost three years. The jury began deliberations. Wow. Can you imagine being on a jury for three years? No, of course not. Uh, In 1990, Peggy and Ray Bucky were found not guilty of most of the charges against them. The jury on a couple of charges, it was a hung jury. But not the, I'm assuming not the top charges of child molestation. No, they were. They were hung on some of the molestations because remember there was also different children and different accusations. So so they hung on Mm -hmm. some of them. But uh, to be honest, they found them not guilty on most of the charges. 
But afterwards, you know, there were some very angry protests by the McMartin, the families, and they hired attorneys to gain access to the McMartin school, which was closed down. As a matter of fact, I think Danny Davis owned it, the lawyer, because I think that's how they paid him with the property. So the, the, the parents, they hired investigators to go over and dig and try to find those tunnels. I'm assuming that the public, the majority of people were supportive of the accusers, not the family. Yes. Okay. Yes, initially, and for quite some time until the tides changed, but that wouldn't come until much later yet. Okay. Most people were supportive of the I'm family. I'm dying to know how and when the tides changed. Well, we can't get there yet because there was a second trial. and Just on two, Peggy and... Yes, but you might ask, like, isn't that double jeopardy? But the jury was hung on some of the charges, which means that they can be retried again. And Ira Reiner decided to retry the case. This That's was the very DA. rare. Prosecutors usually will not retry after a hung jury. Um, I don't know. I've yeah. seen I've seen it mixed, yeah. uh, actually. But in this case, because there was, you know, five defendants dismissed and so many charges that were gone and you have this original witness who died and you have... You know, it exposed that Key McFarland's techniques were bad. You would think he wouldn't have pressed on. But there was political pressure. Remember, he's the DA. He decided to retry the case with Pamela Bozanich as the lead prosecuting attorney. Things got a little interesting here. So I watched a documentary. Danny Davis, who stuck with Peggy and Ray Bucky, tried to engage Pamela with plea bargain discussions. Mm -hmm. But why? So Raymond and Peggy were considering a plea? No. Oh. And Danny Davis claims that he told them, we're not going to take a plea, but I'm going to engage them. And then guess what happened after? It leaked to the press that they were engaged in plea bargaining discussions. And that did not look good for Reiner and for the prosecution because they were asked, did you ever, did you ever offer a plea? And they said no. And they said, we have tape that you actually did. You engaged in plea discussions. So mm -hmm. you just lied to the public about it now. And so Danny Davis says, well, I didn't leak the tape. But, you know, yeah. I mean, yeah. I don't think the prosecution, it didn't look good for the prosecution. Okay. So they clearly didn't leak it. By the way, side note, Reiner lost the election. But Bosnich went forward with the case. She went with just a few victims, a few experts. And after three months... In 1990, the prosecution rested. So this was a much more yeah. succinct case. Ray Bucky again took the stand in his own defense. So what do you think happened after this trial? Not guilty. This trial resulted in another hung wow. jury. And after seven years, Reiner dropped the charges against the Buckys. The case cost a total of $15 million to try. Oh, that's unbelievable. But I still need to know, because I know that they are assumed as innocent people. I've heard of this case as, you know, it was a witch hunt. And I'm curious when the tide changed and how, why? Just briefly, um, I only have a couple more things, yeah. but the aftermath. So what happened to these people, yeah. we might ask. And I'll tell you that it's it, very quiet on most of what happened to them after. But I can tell you that it was Peggy Ann, like the, the younger, the granddaughter, and someone else, I believe maybe her mother, they sued one of their accusers and they won a civil suit and the judge awarded them one dollar. What? The judge said, yes, you were right. Or yes, we believe your suit was correct, but we don't actually believe this damaged your long-term reputation. Wow. One dollar is all they ever were awarded. This was only two defendants. That's I know. bullshit. Like, that's such a dick move. Like, why even? Why even? Yeah, yeah I agree. The other members, uh, Ray Bucky went on to go to law school and eventually he changed his name, which can't blame yeah. him, and relocated with his wife and son somewhere. Oh, good for him. Yes. He Assuming went he's innocent, good for him. Assuming he's innocent, you're correct, and we can talk about that. Um, Virginia McMartin died at age 88 after a series of strokes. It was about 
five years after mm-hmm. all this ended, she was older and, you know, she was in declining health. And I'm sure this didn't help. Peggy McMartin, her daughter, Virginia's daughter, the one who actually went to, you know, two trials, died at the age of 74. I didn't see what the cause of death was on hers. And I read a bunch of articles. I believe she died at home. She was the most vocal afterwards about going out and saying, our lives are ruined. You have taken everything from us. And obviously she claimed their innocence the whole time. They all maintained their innocence throughout the whole thing. They would never engage in plea discussions. They all were adamant that they had not done Were there any wrong. witnesses, any character witnesses at any point that said this family ever did anything? There any history of no. acting in a certain way? The, no. This all rested on. Yes. I don't even believe any of these people. I could be wrong, but I don't believe any of them had any criminal history. I think these were all, you know, upstanding citizens. Peggy Ann Bucky applied for and got her teaching credentials back, and she actually resumed her career, which I was glad because she was a young woman. Key McFarland's techniques were criticized, but she stood by her findings, claiming that she was naive about the investigation, that it was up to the police to... Does she now also believe that they are, in fact, innocent? No, she stood by her findings. Oh, she did. Okay. Yep, she always did, even though she was criticized, and she went on with her career. Astrid Hager, as I mentioned, methods of photographic documentation became widely used in these types of cases, and she's very well regarded. Some of the former students, there's a couple that still claim they were molested, Mm. while others have openly admitted that they never were. Some have admitted that they knew it was a lie that they were telling, but they were pressured to tell it and felt coerced. It would be very difficult, Amy, at this point to know what actually happened, if anything. It's possible that one or two students were molested. I just don't know. But it's also possible, as you know, that they now believe they were molested. Mm -hmm. And it's also possible that they were molested, but maybe by someone else. Mm -hmm. And these were just the people who unfortunately took the brunt of it. It's really hard to know the final conclusions. I can tell you that a lot of them have recanted as adults. Mm -hmm. Why did this happen? And when did the tides change? Well, this is around the satanic panic Mm -hmm. time in the 1980s. There were other similar trials like these in which they were very high profile. Why in the 1980s, though? Why the satanic panic then? Well, people feel that it was really a backlash against the sexual and cultural revolution that was the 1960s and 70s. In the 1980s, as we always teach our classes, politics turned more conservative and the focus was being tough on crimes, drugs, deviant behavior. So this was definitely a backlash to the open sexuality, for sure, of the 60s and 70s and the conservative nature of the 1980s. In one article I also read, and I agree, that this was also a heightened fear of possible homophobia linked to the AIDS epidemic. That makes total sense. I think both of Mm -hmm. these, I think the combination of these factors became like the perfect storm. Yes. When did it change for the McMartins? Well, when you read now, uh, most of what I read, I would say post late 1990s was favorable to them. It was when researchers and other people began looking at the satanic panic for what it was and started, you know, the the revelation came that many of these cases might have been wrongful accusations. This goes along with the West Memphis Three, doesn't it? Yeah, I kept thinking about the West Memphis Three. The West Memphis Three involved the brutal murders of three eight-year-old boys in the small conservative town of West Memphis, Arkansas. And the Suspects that were brought forward were teenagers who were kind of on the outskirts. They were kind of those who were, you know, not the most reputable. And one of them was really into the study of Wicca and dressed in black. So he was viewed as an outsider. And this whole idea of Wicca led to Satanism, led to the Satanic panic. And that's how this relates. And I was also going to say the timing goes along with when DNA started exonerating people in the 90s. And I think people Along with DNA exonerations came people starting to you know, question different practices, and there was a lot on 
you know, child's suggestibility around that time. Uh, the Satanic Panic in the West Memphis Three was definitely... Uh, what year was that in? It was really, I would say it was really in the late 1990s mm-hmm. uh, that the tides began to turn. And most of what I have read from the 2000s on is really an examination of the wrongful accusations of the Bucky family mm-hmm. and of their the three other teachers. Mm-hmm. It's hard to know. I feel bad because throughout this whole episode, I I found myself commenting as if it was wrongful accusations. So I do feel bad in a sense that if they were rightful accusations, then, you know, it's there's no way to know. We could just say based on what we know, I would lean more towards the fact that these were just wrongful accusations. But at the end of the day, we don't know. No, at the end of the day, we, we can't be conclusive. However, I do think this this case is illustrative of bad practices, coercing young witnesses who are not, you know, that was not the type of investigation that should have been conducted. It was clearly biased. Mm-hmm. It is possible that there were some real victims here, but we won't know because of the flawed practices. And it certainly seems that they were overzealous in the number of people they brought to trial and the number of allegations. And if I had to guess, I'm going to bet Virginia McMartin and some of those other people were were innocent and wrongfully accused here. I'm glad that we have more awareness on this topic. And I'm glad that in reflection, we can look back and recognize that this was, in some ways, a modern day witch hunt. I agree, Megan. Thank you so much for bringing us this case. Thanks so much, everyone. We'll catch you next time on Women in Crime. Women in Crime is written and hosted by Megan Sachs and Amy Schlossberg. Our producer and editor is James Varga. Our music is composed by Dessert Media. If you enjoy the show, you can get access to ad-free episodes, exclusive AMAs, and other bonus content for a small monthly contribution through Patreon. To find out more, visit patreon.com slash womenincrime. Sources for today's episode come from The Daily Beast, The New York Times, and the McMartin Family Trials on Oxygen. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the roaring 20s. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.